1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and the host of the channel today. So today we're going to be talking to Sophie Chow, who is the Discovery Early Career Researcher Award Fellow and lecturer in anthropology at the University of Sydney. And she is the author of the new book, In the Shadow of the Palms, More Than Human Becomings in West Papua. So Sophie Chow, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Alex. It's wonderful to be in conversation with you. So um,
1: can you tell me a little bit about your early training and work? And I think you said you wanted to begin with uh, land acknowledgement because of your situation in Sydney. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about the land where you're currently situated? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about your early training and work.
0: Sure, Alex. Um, So I'm speaking to you today from the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Australia, and I'd like to start by paying my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present, and emergent, uh, and also pay tribute to Gadigal kin, both human, animal, vegetal, and elemental. Uh, So I'm an environmental anthropologist and multi-species ethnographer by training. uh, And over the last decade, I've been interested in the intersections of ecology, capitalism, health uh, and justice in the Pacific region. Um, I came to develop this interest um, through my prior career in the human rights sector um, when I was working for an international human rights organization based in the UK uh, and in Indonesia. uh, And that brought me to conduct investigative research uh, across the Indonesian archipelago and particularly in the Indonesian-controlled province of West Papua, where I then ended up doing my PhD and postdoctoral fieldwork over a period of um, 18 to 20 months and a lot of this research really centers on indigenous people's experiences of large-scale land-based transformations uh, particularly industrial oil palm expansion all within the bigger context um, of anthropogenic uh, climate change and the sort of ecological unravelings that are uh, key markers of this current epoch.
1: Mm. So you got your start doing Activism. And as um, some readers of, or some readers, some listeners of the podcast would know, uh, West Papua is the western half of the island of New Guinea. The eastern half is the independent state of Papua New Guinea. And this is an area that's undergone a process of colonization or settlement by Indonesia. And that includes both some settler colonialism as well as the creation of large plantations. And um, there are many. West Papuan activists and other people who have called this a genocide. Um, So it's a very, very fraught situation. So you started as an activist and then that led to some intellectual interest as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so the region of West Papua has been under... Seller colonial rule um, since the 1960s, Um, and my initial engagement with communities on the ground uh, was in the capacity of an advocate supporting um, ongoing grassroots land rights struggles uh, and advocacy uh, in support of indigenous customary land rights, um, and often in the face of large-scale extractive uh, top-down development projects, including mining, uh, pulp pulp and paper plantations, and more recently oil palm plantation development. Um, eventually, I uh, shifted um, my angle um, to a more anthropological lens, uh, largely in light of the fact that a lot of the activism I was engaged in um, demanded a, a sort of simplification or, or reduction of the incredibly complex uh, and messy realities that I was witnessing in the field in the interests of effective advocacy and um, in the face of corporate and state actors. Um, but there was so much more going on in the everyday everyday lived lives of these communities uh, who are being displaced, uh, dispossessed and disempowered under both colonial and capitalist regimes. And so the idea behind the long term field work was really to try to um, get a better, you know, insight and understanding of how everyday life plays out and particularly the sort of culturally shaped ways in which uh, oil palm's arrival in customary uh papuan lands is reconfiguring papuan's relationships not just to each other but also to the settler colonial state and to settler populations and to a whole array of different introduced uh, and often invasive non-human species including oil palm itself
1: mm. so where did you go to do your d your phd and and uh who were some of your sort of intellectual mentors of, of influences that helped you turn that initial sense of uh sense of complexity and that awareness of the richness of those issues into an academic study where you're doing field work and you have a set of theoretical questions you're trying to answer in addition to the importance of documenting the particularity of this case.
0: That's a great question. Um, so my uh, undergrad uh, master's training in anthropology um, was in the UK at Oxford. Um, I then went on to work for the Forest People's Programme, um, an indigenous organization um, that works across the tropics. Uh, and then I decided to come to Australia to undertake my PhD and um, in part because of the geographical proximity to Indonesia, um, in part because had I not been able to do my fieldwork in Papua, um, I was able to work with diasporic um, exiled Papuan refugee communities, uh, but also because I had found um, a number of different mentors uh, who were each um, going to bring something different to the project uh, methodologically and conceptually. And so I had the privilege of working with three different supervisors, um, Yap Timmer, who's an anthropologist of Melanesia, working primarily on state formation and political anthropology. I was supervised by Eve Vincent, uh, who's an anthropologist of Aboriginal Australia and has worked on environmental justice movements uh, led by Indigenous Australian communities. Uh, and then I also benefited from the supervision of Evan Kirksey, who's a pioneer in the interdisciplinary field of multi-species studies, um, a current that is really trying to uh, resituate the human within a broader spectrum of consequential life and life forms, including plants and animals. And so my PhD really sort of flourished at the intersections of these three, um, quite different approaches to anthropology and to what engagement and 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 knowledge production in anthropology can or or, or might look like. Um, and I was constantly sort of, uh, yes, uh, strategically bringing in different theoretical and, and conceptual ideas into the mix and through the lens of these three quite different approaches.
1: Yes. You know, the title of the book is In the Shadow of the Palms. And that S at the end of Palms is important because this is sort of the story of two kinds of palm trees sago and oil palm and then the and then after the colon you get the more than human becomings which i take it to be sort of a reference to that multi-species kind of work that you were interested in
0: mm, absolutely yes and it's funny that you mentioned that uh, uh, you know a, a shorter extract of this book was published a couple of years earlier in cultural anthropology, and that one didn't have an S at the end of palm. Uh, and over the course of writing the book, it became increasingly clear that, as you say, this is the story of two very different palm species: uh, the sago palm, which is um, a native palm of the, of Papua, um, and one that's also cherished as a kind of kin. By the Marind peoples, whom I worked with, and then at the opposite end of the sort of moral-vegetal spectrum is oil palm, this introduced um, invasive plant that many Marind describe as a colonizer uh, because it's taking over the lands and ecosystems that they. And sago palms um, require to survive and thrive, um, and the more than human uh, element of the title, yes, very much speaks to what the book is trying to do, um, is to sort of think through the multi-species entanglements uh, that are being subverted, um, severed, but also enabled in different ways by the transformation of biodiverse native forests into industrial or palm monocrops. Um, and you know, I, I toyed for a long time between the sort of more-than-human or multi-species framing, Um, and there were a whole range of reasons why I picked more-than-human, one of which is that the idiom of species that's sort of embedded in multi-species very much uh, finds its roots in a particular way of understanding the world, um, namely secular scientific taxonomical frameworks, Um, and I wanted to stay closer to the more-than-human because it spoke more faithfully, I think, um, to the ways in which Marin themselves experience and and theorize their relations to other than human beings
1: Mm. so can you tell me a little bit more about the mirand and who they are how you uh sort of uh, did your field work and um how they fit into the argument obviously we have two palm trees i should have mentioned the people that you were staying with as well tell tell me about the mirand and what what the challenges are that they face
0: Sure. Um, So I spent uh, 18 months conducting uh, fieldwork amongst Merind, uh, living in three settlements uh, located along the upper reaches of the Bi'an River in the Papuan district of Moroke, which borders with Papua New Guinea. Um, the primary method I was using was participant observation, uh, which entails uh, long-term immersion in the everyday life of uh, my host communities. Uh, I also participated in expeditions to the forest, um, mainly to forage foods. Uh, a lot of my field work involved walking across the landscape, bivouac, Talking, listening to people's stories um, and conversations uh, about the environment surrounding them, and also, of course, uh, documenting uh, the sorts of challenges that these communities are facing in the context of uh, large scale land appropriation by foreign and domestic corporations um, for the development of privatized or palm plantations. Um, So these developments um, are often being um, undertaken without the free prior or informed consent of local landowners. Um, They tend to be presented as fait accompli, um, with very little space for communities to voice their own aspirations um, or to participate in a transparent way um, in land allocation processes. Um, And all of this, of course, sits within the bigger picture of, of West Papua's settler colonial history, um, one in which uh, the region has been under colonization since the 1960s following a controversial referendum. Um, so the sort of bigger picture of denied sovereignties and denied self-determinations um, is, is the bigger context in which uh, land appropriation and indigenous dispossession um, are are happening um, in, in Merauki and elsewhere across the region.
1: So, so there... They have, uh, you know, forest that they travel in, which is really important to them. And they're just seeing it being cut down and replaced by apparently just massive, massive plantations of monocrop oil palm, and it, which is all sort of on a grid and all surrounded with razor wire, barbed wire. And it just sounds like it must be an absolutely massive change for them to experience.
0: Absolutely, uh, and it's a change that ha- that has happened relatively fast. Um, Oil palm was introduced into the region around two thousand and eight, um, coinciding with a spate of large scale land acquisitions or land grabs across the global south during that period, um, prompted by the food fuel. And finance crisis of 2008 Um, and these plantations are indeed uh, massive in scale and they can reach up to 300,000 hectares um, and they often lie adjacent the one to another in a sort of um, patchwork of privatized concessions um, that are owned, managed and patrolled um, by corporate forces often in collusion with military forces um, who are employed as as plantation personnel and so we're talking about a highly militarized landscape as well Um, and indeed that privatized not not only has undermined um, Marin's access to to, to traditional foodstuffs that they would derive from the forest, but it has also radically severed the intimate and ancestral relations that they have traditionally entertained um, with forest plants and animals, whom they also consider as kin uh, and with whom they share common descent from ancestral creator spirits.
1: Yeah, you know, you have a chapter in here which describes what it's like for people to Make sago, Um, and uh, I think that the the book opens with an image uh, of uh, water in a container. And that image I've seen on the I think a version of it is on the cover, and I think I've seen it in some of the other materials that you use. Can you just tell me about what sago means to people and for readers or listeners who aren't familiar what sago is and how it's processed? I, I found that chapter to be just a very lovely and very human. Account of what it is like to, to harvest Sago and be in the forest and and be with other people is a very compelling account of how people's lives are made meaningful through their engagement with the the place where they are.
0: Thanks for that, um Alex. Yes, yeah, so the the chapter you're you're pointing to there, um which really hones in on the multi-sensory. Fleshly um, interactions of Marind to Sago Palm sits somewhere towards the middle of the book. And, and it, in many ways, it serves, it sort of offers a, a welcome moment of pause and a hiatus from the attritive violence of the monocrop regime that is the focus of so many of the other chapters. There's a bit of a, a breath of fresh air, if you wish, um, in which I invite the reader to follow Marind in this practice of, of going to know Sago, uh, which is a big part of everyday life in Marind communities. Um, and one that entails traveling to sago groves, um, often in groups and for extended periods of time to process sago and to obtain the sago starch from the sago palm, um, which the palms are felled and then the trunks are rasped and leached with water to extract um, the edible flower. Uh, but more than that, it's also a practice of, of, of immersion, uh, sensory effective immersion in the environment of the sago palm um, through practices of listening, of touching, of observing Uh, of tasting um, through which Merind really try to uh, yeah come to grips with the multi-sensory multi-species life world of of this venerated and cherished palm that coexists with a myriad um, different other organisms um, insects mammals birds other vegetation rivers mangroves swamps and so forth Um, so it's a deeply um, you know sensorially charged space and practice uh, and it's one that in contrast perhaps the shadow um, the, the the looming shadow of the monocrop offers shelter and shade to both human and other human beings who know how to live with and share space with and the sago palm
1: you know i i do my field work in highlands papua new guinea where sago doesn't grow and i've had it only a couple of times when i've been visiting people on the coast and i've always been struck uh it's like a lot of staple starches it, it can absorb flavor very easily. and I know people who cook it in lots of different ways, sweet and savory. And uh, there's a one moment in the book where you ask somebody what sago tastes like. And as I was reading that passage, I sort of thought, you know, I'm not sure that that's a very good question because sago doesn't taste like anything. it It's you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of neutral and it's kind of tastes like wherever it's from, you know and and then the person who you asked the question to said, it tastes like everything. And I just thought that was such a wonderful moment where they describe it tastes like the animals. It tastes like the birds. It tastes like the forest. You know, it, it, uh, it's, it's, it's connected to everything. So it sort of tastes like everything.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, um, I, I a lot of the anthropological scholarship um, on, on sago has, to some extent, been quite denigratory of this particular starch um, because it's you know low in, in in nutrients and vitamins and proteins and so forth. Um, so it was really fascinating to uh, to ask Marind, you know, what 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 were the gustus, gustatory valences of this foodstuff? And it turned out it's impossible to actually explain in simple terms what sago tastes like uh, because this flour, this this starch, um, you know, crystallized in many ways the various flavors and the various life forms that together animate um, the sago grove as as a multi-species space. Um, And a central part of that is is this idea of of skin and wetness, um, which are two prominent Um, concepts or material semiotic figures in marine cosmology um, skin and wetness refer to bodily flesh and fluids um, that are shared by all life forms and also elements for that matter rivers and mountains and soils and that are perpetually being exchanged and transferred and passed on between and across different um, species and organisms um, in a life-sustaining and vitality-producing way so skin refers to bodily skin but also to the surface and bark of trees and the fur and feathers of animals and birds. Wetness refers to blood, grease, um, tears also, but also sap, resins um, and all kinds of other life-sustaining fluids. And so food is rendered nourishing and and palatable um, in light of these exchanges of skin and wetness that are perpetually reshaping and and nourishing both Marind and and their diverse other other than human kin.
1: You say that when people are processing the sago flour, they'll, they'll rub the flour on their children's face so that they share skin with the sago, I think you put it. That's just a wonderful, very powerful cultural moment, I thought, just full of, full of meaning.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um so yes, people will um rub the the wet start to the of the sago palms um piss on their children's bodies to enhance the the glossiness or the wetness of their children's own skin and flesh um and to, you know, encourage them to grow strong and healthy. Um uh, people will also pre-masticate sago and then actually pass on the pre-masticated food to their loved ones as a sort in a sort of direct transfer of their own bodily fluids um people who process, who rasp and leech the sago starch, also instill the starch with their own sweat through their labors, which is then taken in uh, by those who consume it. So again, there's this perpetual exchange of fluids um, happening between and across humans and other than humans. Um, and um, that's yeah, a really um, yeah, moving, I suppose, and fleshly way of thinking about um, relations of eating and being eaten and feeding and being fed um, across species lines.
1: I think, I'm sure you're very familiar with this literature, but uh, if listeners aren't familiar, I believe Stephen Feld has recorded um, songs of people working Sago. So if people Google that, they can actually listen to the sounds of Kaluli people as they're processing Sago and singing, and the singing is harmonized to the rhythm of them processing the Sago. You get the feeling that it's a, a full body experience, I suppose, as you just said.
0: Absolutely. Um, and Stephen Feld's work has been super influential on my own thinking, particularly his concept of acoustemology or knowing through hearing, um, which I engage with a lot in this and other chapters, um, because it's so central to the way in which Marind experience um, being in the grove, right, through this sort of attunement and attention to the rhythms and, and harmonies animating this, this more than human space, and also to the sounds of their own labors, um, as you describe the processing, the rasping, the leaching, um, the felling, the singing, the storying, um, the joking, a- and so forth, um, all of which sort of come together um, in, in shaping the bioacoustics of, of the Sago Grove.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's, it's very interesting to me. I think um, one of the dangers of giving a description of you know, if I can be so blunt, like darkly complected people in the forest working their subsistence crop at harmony with nature, is that there are certain kinds of tropes of, you know, uh, the noble savage or uh, co- communal harmony, unity with nature, which have a, a kind of history, which is problematic and are often inaccurate. But you make the point that for Marin people, this kind of connection with uh, the plants and animals that they encounter is is one of difference and also one of of restraint that they don't see themselves as merging with these forces that the their connection to these forces come from giving a certain amount of respect and distance to them and that resonated with me because i've i've experienced that from my own time in new guinea but I think for many listeners, that might sound very strange, how, how care and restraint can be connected. Can you tell me a little bit about that part of your argument?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um you're absolutely right. I mean, it's something I certainly struggled with myself um, in the practice of ethnographic representation, right? Um, avoiding slipping into the uh, slot of, of the ecologically noble savage or portraying indigenous Papuans as sort of um, organic conservationists. And that's certainly, uh, yeah, a, a troubling and problematic trope. Um, and, and what came to the fore during the course of my participant observation among um, Marindin and Merauke was this uh, ethos of of what I call in the Book, book, um, what I call Restrained Care. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the idea, um, you know, it's one that applies not just to Marin's interactions with plants and animals or the landscape, but also, with you know, in child uh, rearing practices. And this idea that, that care um, should never be at the expense of the autonomous growth agency and affordances of the person that one is in relationship with. Um, so one expression of that, for instance, is Marin's uh, reticence to engage in domestication either of plants or of animals. Uh, and this is because they very much see domestication as a form of control or, or mastery or domination um, or indeed violence uh, that deprives plants and animals of their own autonomous capacity to grow and proliferate uh, and eventually die um, through their own and um, species specific ways. Um, and that's also uh, you know, a reason why they don't um, uh, 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 domesticate animals as pets, for instance, um, and that they see domesticates as as kind of problematic entities um, uh, because they've lost their autonomy or, or freedom. And often people will use the term autonomy and freedom um, you know, interchangeably. And I think a, a big part of that ethos of restrained care or minimal manipulations of the environment um, also comes down to an acknowledgement of the unknowability of the non human world, and mm-hmm. the idea that one can never fully grasp or comprehend the perceptual life world of a plant or an animal, um, and respecting that radical i suppose is the counterpart to the ethos of egalitarianism that is so much um that is so central to the multi-species ethos undergirding marine ways of being and knowing and that not all beings can be known and that respecting that unknowability is just as important to care and as is um, the attempt to know through the senses and through stories and through lore and so forth
1: yeah i think it would be difficult for many people Uh, To wrap their head around the idea that you shouldn't plant a garden or start a farm because it would be rude to the plants, you know, Um, but that's, that's how they feel not just about plants, but also about people and other animals that, that you need in order to have a relation, you need to have a distance as well. It sounds, sounds like that's, that's what's going on there.
0: Yes, absolutely. And um, it's a constant navigation between intimacy and respect um, for distance uh, and alter- alterity that's at play here. Um, and of course, in that light, um, the, the, the monocrop form uh, that is taking over native groves and forests take on, takes on a whole different meaning, right? Um, because the monocrop is, um, the very logic of it is grounded in, in, in sort of domination and control um, and, and, you know, genetic modifications and, you know, Simplified homogeneous reconfigurations of landscapes um, to produce profits commodities and so forth. So, the plantation really is kind of the opposite extreme to that ethos of restrained care and respectful distance.
1: Yes, it's always struck me, Marilyn Strathern's account of individuality and relationality in Melanesia has been very, very influential, uh, especially to people who are not uh, Melanesianists. Uh, and Her portrayal of people as being uh, sort of dissolved into the networks that compose them, I've always sort of felt it might lead people astray because it doesn't allow them to understand how important in many areas of this world it is for people to acknowledge difference and separation so that they can have a relationship. Strathern herself, I, I think, obviously understands this very well. But sometimes I, I feel that people who read her without having a lot of ethnographic background feel like human beings are dissolved into some sort of network or pool of relations with other people. Whereas I feel like you show very well the way in which the uh, autonomy is, is a form of relationship or involves distance. And you mentioned these domesticates and the, the plantation. We should probably turn to the discussion of the the palm and uh you, you talked about domesticates earlier. You also talk about cassowaries or a cassowary that was uh, kept as a pet, and people didn't think it was cute. They felt sad for it because it could not run away. Run, excuse me, run away in the forest and and do cassowary stuff. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about about that, and we can shift to the discussion of the other side of this uh, dichotomy of the two trees.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, So yeah, the chapter uh, that you're referring to focuses on the story of a juvenile cassowary that my companions named Reuben and who they salvaged um, from a a patch of forest uh, that had recently been raised to make way for uh, an ore palm plantation. And Reuben, the cassowary, was one of many animals uh, that are now either being salvaged and brought back to the village, by community members um, or who are in fact themselves approaching uh, marine settlements in search of shelter and subsistence um, as their uh, own habitats give way to industrial monocrops. Um, And what was really fascinating was uh, the sort of really high degree of ambivalence that Marin expressed towards these animals, uh, who they often referred to as orphans. Or as refugees, and um, these were organisms that, much like morin themselves, um, were losing their environments and homes to uh, to industrial plantations, and yet marind were. Quite literally, reluctant to pet them, and um, they wanted to keep a distance from them. These animals were a source of anxiety and concern, and sometimes mockery. Often sadness uh, and compassion and pity, um, and in large part, uh, that uh, you know arose from uh, the fact that these animals were were seen to be no longer free or wild or autonomous uh, because they were now confined or captive to the space of the village, and um, they were also taking on all kinds of strangely human like behaviors in the village, and um, from eating rice and instant noodles to taking baths in plastic buckets um, and that was you know deeply strange to marind that these animals were becoming uncannily human-like uh, and thereby losing their aptitudes and affordances as forest critters um, and as kin to other forest beings and um, in their natural environments um, and another big part of the ambivalence surrounding domesticates like Reuben uh, was the was the impression that many Marid had that these animals, in fact, preferred to live in the village um, and no longer wanted to return to the wild. Uh, And often uh, community members would would try to coax these animals back to the forest. They would try to coax the crocodiles, the tree kangaroos, the deer, the cassowaries back to the wild. Uh, But these animals wanted to stay in the village. Um, And so there there were many questions being raised here about the intentionality of animals themselves. Um, Is it that they want to stay in a human environment? Is it that they no longer want to return to the wild? And how does that then, in turn, perhaps speak to or mirror some of Marin's own conundrums of the whether to maintain their traditional forest-based way of lives or whether to embrace capitalist projects like monocrops in the pursuit of a better or perhaps simply different future for themselves uh, and their children and grandchildren. Um, So these domesticates were troublesome or problematic matter out of place to borrow uh, Mary Douglas's term um, in many ways, because they offered a sort of all too faithful reflection uh, of the fates and futures um, of their own human keepers.
1: Yeah. So they really become an object for people to, think through some of their own concerns about becoming domesticated and um, Mm. increasingly dependent on uh, non-forest foods. And yeah, it sounds heavy.
0: It is, absolutely. Sorry, that's not Um, a question.
1: That was just just my comment. It sounds heavy. I, I don't know if that's a question or not, but yeah.
0: It is. It is heavy, Alex. And um, many of the stories are, and the, you know, the toughest part with this book was, was trying to tell the stories well and, and do justice to, to that heaviness um, through the theories uh, and discourses of, of my of my Papuan friends themselves, as sort of theorists of their own changing worlds. Um, and just just really quickly to go back to Ruben, um, you know, this, this young cassowary disappeared one day from the village, and he was nowhere to be seen. And his disappearance only further intensified the sort of, um, you know, conundrums and conjectures uh, among 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 the Marines who had been keeping him. Some believe that finally he had returned to the wild and he had, in fact, not lost his capacity to live autonomously and, and in the freedom of the forest. Uh, Other villagers believed that he had been captured by plantation workers or military forces and eaten, or his body parts sold as tourist trinkets in Medarque City. Um, And that, of course, that in turn raised all kinds of questions for Murin themselves. Um, Was the disappearance of this bird pointing to a horizon of hope? Papun themselves, um, a potential emancipation from colonial and capitalist violence in the future, um, or were there darker fates awaiting them on those inchoate horizons of the future? And um, so the, the speculation surrounding this animal continued long after it itself had disappeared, who knows where.
1: And, you know, one of the other things that I found so remarkable about this book is that um, there are interludes between some of the chapters in which you describe what is apparently a very common phenomenon over there of people having dreams in which they are consumed or controlled or killed by oil palms, literally trees. So these dreams, like the cassowary, become these, uh, these templates on which people project their own fears and anxieties. That's one of the most powerful parts of the book, I thought. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you came to include those dreams. And, and uh, I'll give a spoiler for the readers, like the last dream is your own dream. So tell me a little bit about the process of, of putting that in and what role you wanted those to do in the book.
0: Sure. Um. So yeah, the, the chapters are interspersed with with dream interludes, which are accounts of of nightmares that have become increasingly uh, prevalent amongst Marind communities uh, following the arrival of opal. And these are dreams that they refer to as being eaten by opal, and that idiom of consumption is is widely used um to describe the sorts of forms of violence um uh, that are associated with the arrival of this of this crop. And um, dreams of being eaten by by all part that I mean they're profoundly dysphoric uh, dystopic um people uh, experience or witness their own deaths um in in the plantation over and over again uh, not just from their own human perspective but also from the perspectives of plants and animals who are also uh, threatened uh, by the expansion of of monocrops. Um, Women's dreams of being eaten by oil palm involves experiencing tortured labors and deadly hemorrhages. Um, In some of them, they birth these monstrously deformed oil palm fruit, or what they call uh, oil palm children. Um, Often people talk about having become lost in a plantation and during these nightmares and having no reference point. To situate themselves in either time or place, um, and so that they're, they're, you know, deeply horrifying, traumatic experiences that I was only made privy to quite late in my fieldwork. Um, in fact, when I myself experienced one of these dreams of being eaten by, by Orpam, um, as I recount uh, in the last interlude of the book. And that was a really diagnostic moment and uh, because for Mirinda it, it sort of marked the point where I, I had really truly come to a point where I, I understood the full force of what it means to live uh, and die with um, the plantation form, both across the waking and the sleeping world. Uh, it was really hard to try to find a way to do justice to these often nebulous um, you know, narratives uh, where people were remembering often uh, broken fragments um, of, of these nightly experiences and um, many were punctured with long silences protracted pauses, uh, people would interrupt each other's narratives with fragments of their own dreams and um, there was a lot of, of weeping and sobbing and sighing, all of which of course are really difficult to, to communicate through the textual medium um, how does one represent pregnant silences and pauses for instance um, so uh, writing those dreams uh, you know, really sort of brought me face to face with some of the challenges of, of communicating oneric or dream narratives um, th- through the written medium um, and at the same time I think the narratives uh, also serve a sort of stylistic purpose beyond their, you know, beyond their uh, you know, powerful substance in the way they kind of break the narrative flow of the book itself. Um, they puncture the sort of sense of cohesiveness and, and structure um, through, through these dispersed narratives that sort of don't begin and don't end, that sort of trail off. Um, into different directions, and so the idea here is also to sort of push away from the from the cohesiveness of of the story itself, and by bringing in dream experiences and their sort of nebulous narratives and and and, and really ghostly or spectral kind of um, significance in, in the marine life world.
1: I was struck by how much these dreams were about sago or had sago as a a, a primary material source for the dreams. So the you speak in the the book about the dream of uh, pregnancy and oil palm and you you know you say that um sago is often compared to women and women's bodies and pregnancy uh there's another dream where someone is trying to harvest sago but finds that it's empty so i i i kind of thought although the dreams were obviously about oil palm there was always this implicit moment of sago in them as well and i just i feel like so many people who read this book are going to focus on one of the trees and not the others. But I, I felt like Sego was kind of there the whole time, even that dream, that dream sequence.
0: Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, Sego was a recurring. Motif and and, and figure across uh, many of the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dreams uh, that I was entrusted with during my time in the field. Um, And yeah, I mean, in many ways, the Sago palm has come to embody for many Marind all that has been, all that is being lost and all that is being destroyed um, in the wake of the plantation. Um, Often people would sort of, um, you know, move in their dreams across Sago groves and and ore palm plantations and the sort of Sago palm and the ore palm would at times merge and at that sometimes at other times, you know, be, be, be very distinguishable. But there was a kind of a constant um, moving, moving between these two palms and everything they come to embody um, as sort of two opposed ends of a, you know, political moral vegetal spe- spectrum if you wish um so yeah bo- both palms are equally important to the story um and 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 both co- palms are best understood in relation to one another and that was something that marind always told me that if i wanted to understand all palm i had to understand sago and, and vice versa um and importantly i had to be in the presence of both palms and uh, whether it was through walking to the forest to encounter Sago or whether it was trespassing into a private oil palm plantation, um, to be with oil palm, uh, the the, the being with uh, mattered in both instances.
1: It would be easy to look at oil palm and paint it as the the purely uh, malevolent, malevolent opposite of Sago, but you avoid turning it into a source of pure evil and you describe to the reader the ambivalence and the multiplicity of emotions that people feel towards oil palm. Can you tell me about people's opinions of oil palm and uh, the, the complexities of that? Not just that they hate it because it's taking over everything, but but the the fact that they see it as um, one, one tree amongst others and they have lots of interesting thoughts and wonders about it. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Alex, I mean, both the life worlds of sago palms and oil palms are highly complex, um, but the the ways in which Marind would, you know. D- talk about or theorize the, the world of this, this introduced um, invasive plant pointed to the fact that this plant did not exist as any singular um, thing or identity in, Merind, uh, in, Merind, uh, in the Marin worldview. On the contrary, um, it was a plant that was imbued with all kinds of conflicting meanings uh, and speculations uh, and effective affordances as well amongst the people who are just you know, recently beginning to learn how to live with this, this particular plant. Um, so in the book, I talk about the ways in which Merind, um, you know, fear, loathe and resent this, this colonizing you know, killer palm, um, which is taking over their lands and forests at the detriment um, of both Marind and their other than human kin. But I also describe how those discourses uh, sit alongside other kinds of stories, um, stories in which Marind express deep-seated pity, Empathy and even compassion towards all palm uh, because they see it um, as being itself very much subject to the violence of human and technological uh, genetic manipulations um, in its transformation from plant to part. To product and eventually to commodity, and um, so there was a, a, there was a lot of pity and compassion expressed towards a plant that is also itself um, a subject of, of of capitalist violence as much as it is also a driver of violence um, amongst the peoples and places where it is being introduced, um, and and alongside the pity and the compassion was also a, a, you know a widespread sense of curiosity um, about this new introduced foreign plant being uh, with whom marine do not share relations of kinship. Um, who they very much see as as alien, um, but whose own life way, um, you know, they were also deeply interested in, you know, where it comes from, what it wants why it is so destructive and whether it is so destructive in the places where it grows and w- where it is native to. and People were very curious to know how it had travelled um, from West Africa all the way to, to Papua lands, all the countries and places that it would travel through um, both as a plant and then as a commodity and these sort of multi-sided circuits um, ac- across space and time. And so curiosity, speculation, fear um, and compassion sort of all created, um, a-, a plant that was uh, really, you know, understood by marine desert through a series of ands rather than either ors. Victim mm. and driver of destruction, and foreign colonist and near kin, um, and that sort of heterogeneity, that plurality, uh, is what I try to communicate in the book through this idea of dispersed ontologies. Right, oil palm um, is a plant that has a global career as planters cap- and capital, uh, but it's also a plant that exists in multiple, often conflicted, sort of ways within the worldviews of indigenous peoples and um, who are learning to to make do um, in its often violent company.
1: And could you tell me a little bit more about the extent to which Marin people see oil palm as an active agent in colonization? Because I got the sense that they, although they obviously recognized that Indonesians were doing things, they felt that the plant itself had a kind of agency in in terms of the way that it colonized um West Papua.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um A lot of the people that I worked with, uh, you know, understood all palm as a sort of, uh, botanical ally um, to torque Alfred Crosby's term of the settler colonial project um, in the sense that it uh, was seen to be taking over lands and forests at the detriment of uh, indigenous and native beings. Um, it's a plan that's closely tied to government and corporate rhetorics of development, progress, poverty alleviation all of which are part of a broader sort of civilizational mission um, that is routinely uh, part of, of, of Indonesian state discourse when when it comes to uh regions uh, like West Papua. And so, yes, the agency of the plant was very much part of the story. Uh, and in that sense, there was a, a continuity with the way in which Marind understand um, their own native plant and animal kin, right, um, as agentive, sentient, um, animate beings um, who pursue their own sorts of life course and agendas. Um, so that was you know, uh, being transposed to this introduced plant. Uh, but of course, as you rightly say, uh, Marind are also acutely aware of the human institutional, economic and political forces that are driving the expansion of all palm in the particular form um, that it has been cultivated in West Papua, that is to say, in the monocrop form. And they know that oil palm doesn't have to grow in a monocrop system. It certainly doesn't um, in many parts of West Africa where it where it grows endemically. And so people would constantly be, again, um, thinking through agency as something that's dispersed uh, across plant, human um and other kinds of actors and never reducible to any one particular uh, species and um, or agent um now that was uh, something that came up also in the course of the advocacy right we um, we're often mm-hmm. uh, you know in the context of advocacy with state and corporate actors marind um, were having to engage in a kind of sort of um strategic strategic essentialism uh, and and uh, avoid invoking the agency of oil palm and, and other non-human beings uh, because it would often backfire. This was a, the culturally modulated way in which they understood agency uh, as a multi-species phenomenon. But in the context of their advocacy, um, it often backfired in the sense that government and corporate actors would interpret um, these philosophies um, as evidence of, of primitivism, of, of animism, of superstition, and um, that then only further reinforced their perceived um, the perceived need to modulate modernize or develop uh, or bring Papuans into the world of, of modernity and progress through inter alia and the introduction of industrial monocrop regimes. And so the contexts in which Marind were engaging with different audiences, um, states, corporations, anthropologists, very much in turn inflected the ways in which they would represent and communicate the agencies and um, that are part of, of the story of what's happening um, on their lands and territories.
1: Perhaps that's one of the things that your book can do as an academic book that is still relevant to this kind of policy and anti-colonial struggle, you can provide the background that will help uh, NGOs and others understand what Marin people mean when they say, Sago is, or excuse me, uh, uh, oil palm is eating us. Maybe uh, this will be a way to help bridge that gap instead of forcing Marin to be legible in a way that might not be true to their own histories and cultures and traditions.
0: Mm-hmm. I I mean I, I very much hope so um Alex it was uh you know I really do hope that the book um you know can be addressed to to anthropologists and academics but also to broader audiences um, including activists and NGOs um because I think it it, it does that work of trying to push against the sort of nature culture or social and environmental justice divide uh, by pointing to the ways in which the loss of the forest for Merind, um is a transformation that leaves uh, no space or sphere or species of life untouched. Um, and, you know, the, the centrality of, of, of Sago um, to the story um, is, is a major way in which the book tries to demonstrate how the loss of Sago um, in turn affects the sense of identity and, and belonging and, and being and becoming of, of Marind themselves as, as, as human beings. Um, So yeah, the the book tries to bring out that granularity, that messiness, um, how it can be then translated into effective advocacy, um, I think is a a big and important question, Uh, but it's it's a beginning. It's a beginning um, towards telling the story in ways that do justice to that complexity and that sort of stays with the trouble of the messiness of of human and more than human entanglements on a plantation frontier uh, and a story that um, brings it to the fold, plants themselves as potentially consequential actors, not just as crops and commodities, but as actual participants in the making and unmaking of these, um, you know, unevenly shared multi-species worlds.
1: Yes, I, I mean, ultimately, I think just airdropping thousands of copies of your book over oil palm plantations will not suddenly solve the problem. But, you know, these, these scholarly books uh, offer a sort of anchor for future textual work where you can produce work that refers back to it and, and, um, and it, it provides a way in to a process in which uh, the, the, the academic book ultimately plays a part, I think. Uh, you know, um, I don't want to uh, drag this interview on for too much longer, but, you know, since we've talked about the activist side of this, it strikes me that this book is relatively teachable, given the fact that it is an academic book, and I feel that it is a book that I could teach in my sophomore junior level Pacific Islands culture class although I'd have to work with some of my students on some of the concepts. But you mentioned this concept of dispersed ontology earlier. And I know that there's, we've been talking mostly about the ethnography, but I don't want to let you go without giving you a chance to talk a little bit about how this book speaks to wider debates in anthropology and how you think it could contribute to them. You've done a good job of describing the framework that you've that you use and and how it works and how you've used it to talk about Marin. But how do you see this playing into some of the broader discourses? And how do you think it might affect future scholarly discourse?
0: Hmm. Um, Thanks for returning to that um, concept of dispersed ontology, Alex. Uh, Yeah, so this is a concept that I developed um, really in conversation, of course, with the theories and discourses and experiences of my marine interlocutors, uh, but also with scholarship um, in environmental anthropology, in the ontological turn, and in the interdisciplinary space of multi-species studies uh, and consonant currents, uh, such as the environmental humanities um, and post-humanism. And and the idea uh, or the work, the conceptual work that this uh, notion is trying to do is to uh, invite us to uh, think about, um, in this case, particularly vegetal beings um, through their uh, multi-sided, multi-scalar and multi-temporal trajectories and and, and, and movements. And here I was thinking in particular uh, with palm. Um, I suppose harking back to our earlier conversation about Marin's um, heterogeneous um, understandings of palm, uh, the concept I think can can travel well or can be transposed in terms of um, sort of moving away from static or homogenizing or, or um, you know, reified uh, understandings of, of ontology or, or realities uh, by pointing to their, um, you know, to the mix of, of forms of fusion and fission and fragmentation and, and disagreement and disputes uh, that all together uh, participate in shaping the meaning uh, and the mattering of other than human beings and uh, that we co-become with in more or less violent or harmonious ways. Um, And in that sense, the the notion of dispersed ontology for me uh, can, can, I think, do some useful work um, in in rethinking violence, uh, which is another central theme of the book, Um, and particularly in in rethinking violence as as a multi-species phenomenon, right? Um, One in which humans are not always the drivers and non-humans are not always uh, the perpetrators. Um, So I guess the idea is to sort of distribute the way we understand these, these practices or these agencies or these abordances Um, and in doing so also um, you know engage or contribute to ontological anthropological scholarship that is both trying to take seriously uh, the worlds and realities of the peoples um, whom they are, whose life worlds um, they are, they are seeking to understand and research. Uh, and by the same token, taking seriously the fact that many people disagree uh, amongst themselves about what reality is, um, whose realities count, um, which worlds matter, um, and who gets to count in what worlds. And that's a central question to Marind as they're trying to grapple with this predicament um, of living with introduced uh, plants um, and and other sort of forms formations, that idea of what it means to to live well with other beings and what it means to to share worlds uh, with beings who who inhabit very, very different worlds um, and uh, worlds that are often um, unevenly distributed um, at the same time as they're uh, often permeable rather than bounded.
1: You know, I realize now when I asked that question, I sort of framed it as a dichotomy between theory and ethnography, and perhaps that's just a very Gen X thing of me to do. Is your book in some sense, uh, trying to get past that binary? You say that so much of your framework grew out of your experience with Marin people. Uh, is this a, a, a binary that's worth keeping, or is it been replaced already, and I didn't notice? Or you know, can you speak to maybe some of the the blurring and dispersion I, maybe that's happening in anthropological theory right now? Is, is it crazy? Is that binary uh, Is a useful one or does it obscure more than it shows?
0: I think it's a great question, Alex, and it's one that, to be honest with you, I, I still struggle with. I mean, there are times when I don't really, I, I think I don't understand exactly what theory is and what theory yeah. does. Um, so I, 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 it's, it's, it's an important question and it's all the more important um, I think in the light of the current uh, climate in anthropology, where there is, uh, you know, a growing call to to decolonize the field, um, both in terms of its practice and in terms of its, uh, you know, knowledge uh, production, and um, a call stemming primarily from indigenous and critical race, uh, you know, scholars um, to to sort of you know, recalibrate um, our understanding of the relationship between method and ethnography and theory. And so the book really sort of tries to engage uh, with those important ethical and political and intellectual conversations, um, including in conversation uh, with, uh, you know, indigenous scholars from the Pacific region and whose work has been deeply influential to my own thinking. Um, so I think what the book is trying to do is to, um, as I write, you know, avoid imposing on Marin's stories and experiences a sort of carapace of, of Western canonical theory and instead move towards a sort of um, practice of weaving um, which is one that I was skilled in by my marine friends in the field um, who weave sago bags out of sago filaments and fronds. Um, and by this I mean weaving ethnography with theory and also um, dispersing theory um, across uh, you know, knowledge we produced in the global north um, and then theory produced by indigenous peoples themselves as theorists and ontologists of their own changing Worlds, um, including through their own concepts, idioms um, for the sort of changes and transformations that are happening um, across their, la- their across their worlds, um, changes that are not just theorized but also lived um, as, as philosophies and practices and as protocols. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say the book is trying to move away from the sort of um, yeah of framing of, of theory of something as something produced primarily by and for the global North, based on realities that happen uh, in the global South, and um, it's trying to center. Papuan people's own theories of change um, and in doing so you know attend to the really important things that they have to say about what it means to live and to make do under entrenched regimes of, of race and of capital and um, these are people who have something vital to contribute to our understandings of interspecies and entanglements and violence um, in a broader age of planetary unmaking. And that we're all, um, you know, complicit or, 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 or affected with in one way or another, albeit obviously at different scales. Um, so I suppose that's that's part of the decolonial project um, that this book is trying to engage with, whilst, of course, recognizing the limits of what the book can do and um, within the entrenched architectures um, of colonial logics that continue to haunt uh, both, Separate colonized places like West Papua, and also institutional, you know, architectures like the university and academia. Uh, but it's 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 a step in that direction, I suppose.
1: Yes, I I think that um, no one, when they write a single book, is should be responsible for completely finishing all of decolonization or theory or ethnography, whatever those three things might mean. But I I do think overall, though, I was very struck by the book. I thought it was an excellent book. I would encourage people to pick it up. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, since we've been talking about some of these broader issues, can uh, you tell me a little bit about uh, what projects you might be working on in the future?
0: Sure, Alex. Um, so I'm uh, beginning to branch out um, in a number of different directions at the moment. Uh, one of my new research projects uh, is focused on the question of multi-species justice. And this mm. is a project I'm, I'm co-leading uh, with, with Evan Kirksey um, and uh, a whole range of collaborators, um, uh, academics, but also activists and artists. And together we're trying to uh, yeah think through ways of uh, decolonizing this this idea or practice of justice um, from the law and, and trying to rethink uh, other than human beings as potential subjects um, of justice, um, plants, animals, but also ecosystems and spirits and ancestors and so forth. And So this question of justice is one that I'm trying to think with at the moment. Um, I'm also branching out uh, to uh, do some ethnographic fieldwork here in Australia where I've been living and working for the last seven years, um, focusing on interspecies relations Uh, between humans and kangaroos, um, an iconic Australian species that is both a cherished form of wildlife uh, and also a problematic pest. So there I'm going to try to, again, um, entangle questions of multi-species justice um, in the context of a emblematic, but also problematic um, species. Uh, and finally, I'm, I'm still working through a lot of the ethnographic material that I collected during my time in Papua uh, to try to put together um, a second uh, book, uh, which is go- going to be focused on um, cultural constructions of hunger and satiety among Marind peoples. Um, food insecurity has been one of the major impacts of the loss of food forest ecosystems um, and the uh, you know expansion of monocrops and um, so that second book is primarily drawing from marine woman's perspectives and stories to unter- understand and um, what it means to eat well and to feed well in a more than human world uh, and what we can learn from indigenous philosophies of of, of food and diet and nutrition to rethink and um, broader questions of nourishment um, in this age of, of planetary unmaking.
1: well those sound like really interesting projects and i look forward to uh seeing what comes uh, from them, and reading your publications in the future. I think we are coming up on time, so I think I will let you go. But Sophie Chow, author of In the Shadow of the Palms, More Than Human Becomings in West Papua, thanks so much for being on the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much for being in conversation, Alex. It was wonderful.
1: So this has been an episode of the New Books Network. Please go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to find more New Books content. And until next time, take care.